Okay, guys, the internet has been waiting for this one. The Godfather and Based Mom. You'll have to explain to me what that term means. I've used it, but I'm not exactly sure I understand its meaning. Uh, how are you doing, Christina? Fine, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to uh, notify the people of some of your background, some of the books that you've written. All have been fantastic. Before we start, so you're currently, let me just check my notes here, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You have a very successful video blog called The Factual Feminist. I've checked a few of those videos. They're, they're absolutely fantastic. I recommend for everybody to go check them out. And you've written many books, some of the most notable ones being Who Stole Feminism? How Women Have Betrayed uh, how, how Women Have Betrayed Women, The War Against Boys, How Misguided Feminism Is Harming Our Young Boy, Our Young Men, One Nation Under Therapy, How the Helping Culture Is Eroding Self reliance and a, a more recent one freedom feminism it's surprising history and why it matters today fantastic stuff uh, today of course we are celebrating international women's day so it is particularly befitting that you and i should be talking about feminism right absolutely <laughs> happy international women's day <laughs> uh, so i guess the first thing i wanted to ask you sort of to contextualize you know your part of your life's work is you know, there are all sorts of bad ideas out there. And one of the things that I pride myself in doing is that I try to tackle as many of these bad ideas as possible, whether it be radical feminism or postmodernism or stupidity in science. Why did you focus your considerable intellect and efforts on tackling this issue? Well, it wasn't meant to be, a, you know, a lifelong project. Initially, I was teaching philosophy the chair of my department asked me to teach feminist theory. I took a look at the texts and I was very disappointed. Just as a philosophy professor, I felt that they were question begging. It was almost as if they had taken, many of them, not all, but many of them had taken, it, it was warmed over Marxism, let me put it that way. They crossed out class and put gender. And uh, it was also a kind of a, a conspiracy theory about the patriarchal oppressive system, which seemed to me, by the time I was looking at these texts in the 80s, it, it didn't really describe American society. What's interesting about American society in many Western countries isn't how oppressive we are, but why we became so liberated for so many people. We're not perfect, but we've done a better job than almost any country the United States, certainly in any country on earth, historically, you, you've never seen these le this level of liberation and overall prosperity. Again, it's not perfect, but it's so much better. But they, the, these feminists were not interested in celebrating any achievements of Western society. It was denigrating and seemed to have contempt for the Enlightenment. And so I wrote a paper and went to the American Philosophical Association and challenged my colleagues in feminist philosophy, typically when you go to the APA, you have a spirited discussion. It sometimes gets very heated. And then you go out for drinks. We did not go out for drinks. <laughs> I was excommunicated from a religion I didn't know existed. <laughs> now, what, what, so what is the reason for the disconnect between the reality, as you so describe it right now, where, you know, where there clearly isn't this, you know, endless patriarchal oppression going on, certainly in the Western context, and their narrative, where does that disconnect come from? You know, I think that 
they believe their own theories. They take them seriously. And many of the theorists exist in a little, you know, these little esoteric enclaves and on the campus. They, they don't, I don't know that they're ever challenged because what happened, and this also is, is unique, not only did I discover that this field of feminist theory was riddled with fallacies and, and, and dog, dogmatism, but it, these, these, these critics, these theorists did not take well to criticism. Now, in my case, I was excommunicated. Men would be, would, you know, had to run for cover. So we have a body of scholarship that has not been criticized. Right. I mean, it's not to say they don't criticize one another. They have vicious internecine battles, but they really do not, if, if you criticize them, their first principles, for example, they, you were considered by definition a backlasher. Right. Right. And of course, now we have that if you challenge any feminist rhetoric on the internet, it's cyberbullying, right? It's a form of assault. Cyber, they tried that years ago. There was some, I forget what group, some leading group of feminist academics wanted to call hostility to feminist theory a form of intellectual harassment. And right. you know, they didn't get very far, but they, it might, they, I think they're going to bring it back because a lot right. of their bad ideas from the 80s and 90s, they've all come back. So is the, is the idea basically that it's a non-violent way to monopolize discourse, right? I mean, in some countries, if you don't like what people are saying, you behead them. In, in the Western tradition, we, we're not there yet, fortunately. And so they find alternate ways to at least behead your voice, Correct. I do think it is a, a strategy for achieving power right. and monopolizing departments. If you denigrate critics, then you, you feel no obligation to invite them into your department. Right. Now, if I were a chair of a philosophy department, you know, I might think there are theories I don't agree with, but maybe we should have someone that represents that school and can give it a, a, you know, a positive presentation to the students. They don't think of critics that way. You, when I go to campuses, they sometimes organize boycotts, or these days they they set up safe rooms because all yeah, the girls are triggered from in women's studies. We'll come to the trigger stuff later in the chat. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I I heard about your uh, situation with uh, Milo Overland, who, 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 Georgetown. <laughs> right now, Milo is out there. Right. We've been lecturing together. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that upsets me about the, the, the feminist uh, or the, the radical feminist rhetoric is that they're impervious to empirical facts that are argued reasonably, dispassionately. In other words, there is no way to falsify their narrative. And in that sense... Unfalsifiable. Sen right. And in that sense, then, it becomes outside the realm of scientific discourse. And so it the is, and all, all counter evidence becomes evidence because they will say, if you show them that it, women do not accept what they are saying or that, you know, it's an unpopular philosophy, that's just proof to them that uh, how much more work they have to do. Exactly. Or if you, you show them, you show them how far women have advanced. And, um, but then they will, they, it's never enough because then they will look for areas where, there isn't statistical parity, and that automatically counts as discrimination. Unless it's statistical, unless it's a, a, some area where women are doing better than men, that's 
that's fine. So I was actually going to discuss uh, one set of data that speak to this issue that we're discussing. So I did a, a sad truth clip where I uh, summarized data, uh, you know, very reputable data looking at uh, the male to female ratio in educational attainment at American universities across four levels of diploma. So associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctoral degree. So four levels of education across five races. So there were 20 cells that could be looked at in terms of the male-female ratio. Can you guess how many cells women outnumbered men in out of the 20? Would I be wrong to say 20? You are exactly <laughs> correct. That's why you're the superstar. So, I mean, imagine when you've got data that shows that in every conceivable possible way, women outnumber men, yet that does not serve to slightly attenuate the, the discourse because they'll come up with an example of a math department at some liberal arts college that doesn't have the equal number of full professor tenured men right. women, and therefore, exactly. aha, the patriarchy is they still operating. Will, they are spin mistresses. They will, they just spin the truth and come out with, a, a, you know, a, a, the conclusion they had reached b before. I mean, they, they have these foregone conclusions. They will never give them up. Right. And I've been fighting this for years. I didn't think it would take this long. And now, as I said, it's come back. Right. And all of the things I was fighting in the 90s that I wrote about in Who Stole Feminism, that book came out in 94. So I, you, just went, I was just reading it. And it seems to apply more today than, the, than when I wrote oh, it. Oh, is that right? So if you look at the trajectory, it's not as though the pendulum is swinging away. It, if, if anything, it's only worsening, according to you? It's only worsening. No kidding. It's, okay. it's In a way, it's a crisis at many, many levels. It's a crisis of misinformation because these women, these gender scholars, they're sort of, they are essentially the the uh, brain trust of information on gender, but they're, they're unreliable. Right. Journalists don't know that. So they'll read a study done by what appears to be a very prestigious gender scholar, or concerned, you know, female academic, and they take it seriously. Right. And there, there are, there are statistics about women's, uh, about discrimination against women, bias against women. That are false, like the typical, you know, wage gap claim or these right. claims about a rape culture. These are not true, but they have been repeated so often they're beyond correction. Right, exactly. Uh, now, what do you think of uh, this one? I also did a piece on this. The niqab and the burqa are liberating because they avert the male gaze, whereas the bikini is a symbol of oppression. So, I mean, what world must we live in? where the removal of a woman's identity from the public sphere is liberating, but her recognizing that, no kidding, she is a sexual being that in some sense wish, wishes to advertise herself to others, that is viewed as patriarchal oppression. Maybe you could comment a bit about that. Well, I think you'd have to take, you know, several classes in gender studies to understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh... It's perverse. I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, stipulate, I happen to think, if women are, you know, religious and they choose to wear 
head covering or I have relatives who are Orthodox Jews and they are very happy and they choose to live that way and and that's fine. I'm no one's that's their choice. When it is forced on someone, right. forced veiling is horrible. And not to mention I mean forced burkas and right. total shrouding. Awful. And when women don't want it, it's so that this is this is why I of course, believe in 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 the enlightenment and and, and personal choice and and liberty, and uh, kind of I call it freedom feminism or equity feminism, and that's really allowing women to determine their the path they take to in in life and and to determine for themselves uh, and shape their own their own happiness. So that what bothers me about these feminists is that that you're talking about is that they have this, as I said, this distorted view where they want to say that a, a woman in the, in the West who freely chooses to wear a bikini right. <laughs> and you know, enjoys the male gaze, which, uh, sorry, a lot of women do enjoy that. In fact, it seems to be a primary preoccupation. <laughs> if you look at women's magazines and the money we spend on makeup, and not because we are coerced, but because we're we're human beings. We're in this case, heterosexual women want the attention, the gaze of, of males. There's nothing wrong with that. This, this demonizing of, of sexuality of, of, of uh, actually there's a feminist scholar. I like very much, uh, Daphne Pataille. Yes. University sure. of, of, uh, Massachusetts. who's written a book professing yeah. feminism. We've, we've emailed to each other, I think a few years ago. Yes. She's great. She's excellent, but yeah. she has uh, used a phrase. I think she coined the phrase. She and uh, her co-author, Noretta Kortka, the, the phrase is, is heterophobia. <laughs> right. And right. I do not like homophobia. I do not like the policing of the lives of gay people. It was horrible. But right now, today, what we have is in the universities, especially a lot of heterophobia and a kind of treating male sexuality as pathological, a lot of policing you know, and uh, efforts to control that uh, I thought we'd overcome, <laughs> but we just moved on. The intolerance has moved to, towards right. heterosexuality. Well, the, the way I, because uh, you were talking earlier about cosmetics and so on, and that very much speaks to some of the scientific work that I do. So you may or may not know this, but the area that I work in is in applying evolutionary psychology and more generally biological formalisms in understanding human behavior in general, but in understanding consumer behavior in particular. And so, of course, under that rubric, I study things like how men and women use products as sexual signals to ameliorate their lot in the mating market, right? And so it, it is some of the most fundamental, you know, basal mechanisms to recognize that both men and women wish to signal to each other. I mean, we are a sexually reproducing species. So, for example, when I read something like the, the astonishing stupidity of the, the thesis of uh, Naomi Wolf, which I talked about in one of my books, the, I call it the, the, the myth about the beauty myth, right? Where, right. where she basically says, I mean, I, I know you know the story, but for our viewers, uh, you know, women are winning everywhere. And so the only place that the patriarchy can still maintain control over women is by creating this expectation of a beauty myth so that women can feel bad about themselves. I mean, it is so profoundly laughable to espouse such a conspiratorial position. I mean, you have to be so removed from the most basic understanding of sexual dynamics to espouse something like this. 
So the question that I always ask people uh, that are sort of entrenched within these movements, do you think these feminists in the deep recesses of their private thoughts when they turn off the light at night believe their bullshit or, <laughs> or not? Or do they know that they're pulling a scam, but they have to do it for ideological reasons? You know, I, I think they believe it. Really? Because I don't, I don't think most people deliberately tell lies or un, I just don't think people work that way. But we can deceive ourselves. Exactly. And I think that, look, this theory is very inviting. It's a beguiling conspiracy theory. And you find anything that's gone wrong in your life, you have a, a ready-made explanation, you have someone to blame, you have a full-fledged demonology, you have sisters in a struggle, and it's been given very, very... Uh, it, it, the, the literature of feminism is... is you know, some of these women are good writers, they have exciting ideas. And so it's it's an inviting world for some people. Now, who are they? I, you know, I asked myself that because I honestly believed when I wrote Who Stole Feminism, I felt I was speaking and I still believe I speak for the majority of women or, and men, people, normal people with common sense. And, and yet, this movement persists. And I have now come to think of it as a kind of, this sounds a little over the top, but it is a sort of cult for intellectuals. Right. And it's almost like a kind of high level Scientology. I, I, I have a slightly, uh, maybe complimentary uh, theory regarding right. who these, some of these feminists are. And actually there is now some scientific data that might support what I'm about to say. So there was a paper that was published uh, recently and I, I believe actually, if, I, if memory serves me right, that I might have been solicited as a reviewer for the paper. Eventually I, I didn't do it because I was busy with other stuff. It was a paper that was published in Frontiers of Psychology looking at uh, the masculinization of uh, women who attended a feminist conference. Have you, have you seen that paper? Are you aware of it? I am aware of that. Right. Yes. So That's let me. Very let me, interesting. Yeah. So let me summarize this, and then I'll I'll kind of link it to my theory. So uh, they basically took uh, digit ratio measures, which are uh, uh, the 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 length of your index to ring finger actually captures how much androgenization you have had in utero, how much you've been exposed to testosterone in utero, and so women could either have very feminized digit ratios or more masculinized, masculinized ones. And the women in question who were attending this, uh, you know, sort of staunch feminist conference had more masculinized morphology. And also when you administered to them a dominance scale, a psychometric scale, they also scored higher on dominance. So there definitely seems to be scientific uh, validity in arguing that there is something as, a, as a, on the aggregate that is unique about these staunch feminists. Now, my theory is this, uh, you know, we, we often hold on to attitudes and beliefs that serve to protect our ego, right? I mean, if, if I'm losing my hair and uh, I'd like to get some hair plugs, then maybe I will hold positive attitudes towards cosmetic surgery because that will protect my ego, right? It's, it'll be in line with my, with my insecurities. Well, my feeling is that, frankly, a lot of these women, and maybe this is a bit controversial, uh, are probably not the top-scoring women 
on the mating market, right? I mean, it's unlikely to be that a woman who clearly sees her power in the heterosexual mating world is likely to be the one who's espousing some of these theories. And therefore, by entrenching myself in this lunacy ideology, it serves to protect me and make me feel better about myself. What do you think about this theory? Well, I have problems with that theory. <laughs> okay, go for it. Go for it. That's why we're uh, chatting. I mean, I just, first of all, I don't know how you'd test it, but you'd have to see if it's true. Well, I have, I find a, a lot of diversity among the women. Some, there are, you know, a range. There are some very beautiful women. So people want to say, oh, well, they're, they're, you know, overcompensating because they can't compete. Well, that, that many of them are married. Right. And some of my best allies in this battle have been lesbian women. Right. Like, you know, Camille Paglia, I mentioned Noretta Kortka. And, and there's, there's um, uh, also Nora Vincent. I don't know if you know her. I don't know her. She's quite wonderful. Uh, she wrote a book about, she dressed up as a man and went out and for several months to see what it was like. It was sort of like that, that classic book called Black Like Me. Right. I don't know, from the 60s where a man went out and it was really quite powerful. Well, she did it and dressed up. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I can't generalize and, and about these women. They're, they're, I, I, I do think it's possible that those who are vulnerable to this sort of cult of hyper-feminism <laughs> may have, ha, you know, been, I, I sometimes wonder if they aren't unusually neurotic and so they're sort of desperately and depressed and looking for something that will um, explain this, you know, their suffering. And so I, you, you don't, it's, it's not clear to me that it's, these are particularly happy people. Okay. So, so you are, what, what you are conceding is there might be some indicator variables or some discriminatory variables that differentiate between the likelihood of my being a staunch feminist or not. We may disagree on what are the variables that best predict my membership in that group or not, but it is clear that there must be some set of variables. I mean, that's what we do, for example, in marketing, right? Uh, there are people who buy my product and people who don't buy my product. And I'd like to find the discriminating variables that can tell me what are the variables that predict whether you'll be in group A or group B. And so we could use the same exercise to establish what are the key variables that can help us understand why somebody would be likely to be uh, prone to believing in this ideology. I think oh, that would I wish be you could do that. I mean, I wish we could find out like, I, I, and it's, it's it, it may be, I don't know if we can do it, but to find out like young women that are entering college, like just, you could tell parents, these are the personality characteristics or, you know, some set of, characteristics that are predictive of joining this group. And if your daughter does get carried away, I'm not saying she does that she becomes a feminist, that's fine. I'm saying she gets really carried away with campus politics and and the anger towards men and this conspiracy theory about patriarchy and the whole and then it and then all that comes with it, they change sometimes they lose their sense of humor. They think all humor is sexist and so forth. Most of us would not want that to happen to our daughters. Right. right. And so which girls are most vulnerable? And it would be great if you could isolate some characteristics. <laughs> well, I can't say after all these years in the academy, 
you know, except for a certain melancholy. But it, again, that could even be a result of having entered this world, because I do think I have seen cases where sort of happy, well-adjusted girls go in deeply into these programs right. and they will tell you how I lost my sense of humor. I didn't trust anybody. You know, that happened to them as a result of this cult. Right. Gotcha. Uh, going back to when we were talking about the burqa, uh, I, I, I failed to sort of have the yeah. natural segue then. Why do you think so many uh, Western feminists have been so uh, inept at tackling the mistreatment, the gross, the truly vile mistreatment of women in other parts of the country, is uh, other parts of the world? Is it because, uh, you know, cultural relativism trumps their ideology so that in the victimology poker, it is a worse sin to... Uh, criticize the behaviors of so-called brown people and therefore that becomes a no-no? What, what's the dynamic there? What, what's happening? Well, I think you're right. I think the uh, relativism and the multiculturalism just made it impossible for them to feel comfortable about criticizing uh, people uh, you know, in, uh, from other cultures, particularly people of color, uh, Hispanics or Arab, uh, people that were Muslims or people, you know, Asian, they, they, they really are much more comfortable criticizing the men. Right. And <laughs> for example, when I go to these colleges, I do, I, I carry this message. I think the real mission of feminism in the 21st century is to help women in other parts of the world who haven't had two major waves of liberation to help them with their struggle. So I've been to international women's conferences and you meet women who are fighting, you know, acid burnings in Cambodia and they're, they're organizing around that because you can buy it very cheaply. And then a lot of women are punished and, and mutilated by men who throw acid in their faces. It happens to men too, but it's women are the primary victims. Uh, I've met women who are fighting, you know, genital mutilation in Egypt and Somalia and and a child marriage in, in Iran and so forth. The, you, but I go to Oberlin or I go to Georgetown or UCLA, you meet the women in the women's center. They're not focused on those issues. Right. They're focused on how they are oppressed right. at Oberlin College or, or Georgetown by the young men at Oberlin. Right. And they use, they, they speak with more passion and more, you know, sort of moral outrage towards what happened, you know, what somebody said at a party or, you know, some minor, you know, micro nano aggression more <laughs> <laughs> then they, 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 they're not focused on the outside world. This is one of many failures that in our higher education right now is this, the, the, the self-absorption, the narcissism encouraged in these, in these classes. So I'm going to link what you said. I think earlier you mentioned uh, you alluded to neuroticism as a possible uh, mechanism by which some of these women are drawn to this uh, or the, the staunch version of this ideology. Uh, let me peddle another theory of mine and see what your reaction to it might be. I've already uh, shared this in a few public forums. So are you familiar with the psychiatric disorder known as uh, Munchausen syndrome? Yes. Right. So where you pretend to be sick all the time. Right. So if it's if it's Munchausen syndrome, you feign illness 
Uh, and then what you basically get a lot of attention, and that is something that becomes very intoxicating. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is where you have somebody under your care, typically your biological oh, child, yeah. but it could be your pet, it could be your elderly parent. Now you harm them and then, oh, poor you, you have a sick child and so on. Now, I think that a lot of these victimology movements, not just feminism, whether it be, we'll talk about the safe spaces and the social justice warriors and the microaggressions and all that, the trigger warnings. I think it is sort of a collective uh, form of Munchausen syndrome, where people learn that if they ascribe to this victimology narrative, it's a way to get a lot of attention, right? And therefore, right. so don't you, that sounds like a very plausible hypothesis, right? It, it's a good one. Yeah, it, it it's interesting because in a way that's what they do. Exactly. They have created this mystique of, of vulnerability. Right. And not just vulnerability. I mean, they, they describe themselves as living in a state of siege where they're all injured and traumatized. Right. Now, let's just mention, let's note that these are among the most privileged people in the history of the human race. A young woman on, a, on, a, on an expensive, you know, Ivy League campus, and yet she comes to believe yeah. That she's wounded, right? And in and 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 she forms an alliance with other little wounded birds, birds yeah. animals, and <laughs> right. and, uh, and they get an enormous attention because now we have this new this culture. Uh, I think Jonathan Haidt's written very yes. well about this. How we've moved from a sort of a, a an ethic of dignity to an ethic, you know, of, of uh, what he called a victim. A, a dignity culture to a victim culture right. where you actually get prestige from uh, being a victim and you, um, and, and you are easily wounded. Whereas the prior, the prior culture he described as a dignity culture where you, you were thought to be right. You know, you wouldn't make a fuss over small, you have to be prideful. You have to be self-reliant, right? You have to. And the last take... thing you do, you'd only go to authorities. Exactly. You, you know, you wanted to be in charge of your life. You didn't want authorities presiding over them. That that was the revolution in the in the seventies, the sexual revolution. Right. When I went to college, we didn't want dorm monitors or anything. Right. Nobody. There was no college official that we ever talked to. I don't remember talking to them or even knowing who they were. I didn't care right. about them. Well, now they're. These girls are calling them up all the time, right. and they—I've I've heard about this in their meetings that they're 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 constant. Their offices everywhere calling. So there's been this infantilization of students. But yes, I think you're onto something. Is this this uh, a kind of collective Munchausen <laughs> syndrome? Now you know, I have a personal narrative that allows me to uh, tackle some of this. Uh, astonishing stupidity as i said by virtue of the personal history that i've had you may or may not know we're lebanese jews who escaped lebanon under imminent threat of execution so i come from the middle east i know about serious trials and tribulations in life my parents were kidnapped uh, in lebanon uh, and so when i now come to north america experience the freedoms that are afforded to us here and then have to hear some, as you said, some infantilized, coddled, you know, buffoons 
crying about no, exactly infantilized cuddle before you like that huh that's that's copyright so right there <laughs> but i have a question for you sure why aren't there more people like you now to stipulate you do have uh you know this background but there there are very few scholars that are confronting this can i tell and you what? i know there are a lot of men and they, some of them have difficult backgrounds and there are some that were veterans all kinds of things and yet most men don't want to do it. I can understand. So why, how, how did you decide? Well, thank to you. I really appreciate your, 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 your question. And there's no way that I can answer that without obviously speaking of myself. So you'll forgive me if it sounds a bit immodest. I frankly think that very few people have the testicular fortitude to, uh, to live out their convictions, right? I, I recently said on a, on a show that uh, no careerist consideration uh, is worth my sacrificing what I consider to be uh, the truth. I'm just built that way. I, I am offended by bullshit. I mean, it right. literally attacks my sense of self, right? So to the and best... You know what? I, 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 rec I have that. I am offended by bullies. Exactly. And I saw bullying in the academy by these women... They were irrational. They were mean. Uh, they were inconsiderate, and not all of them, but enough of them. Exactly. And so that's what still really gets distresses me. But I can see you react, and and the irrationality is also well, exactly. <laughs> and and so and so I I guess I have the right sort of constellation of traits to not care about these considerations, uh, to not care about cowardly concerns. And therefore, I'm just compelled naturally to speak out. Uh, now, I often try. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, I am so open, other than, of course, to just share the truth and have interesting. You do you have tenure. I do have tenure. Yes, but yeah. but 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 but, but, but it doesn't. But most people, ha I mean, many professors have are tenured and are still quiet. And incidentally, I was outspoken when I didn't have tenure, so that's not. So the 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 protection that is afforded by tenure is not what explains why I behave the way that I do. Because even if I'm tenured, I might want to receive a prestigious professorship elsewhere, and I know that if I kept my mouth shut, uh, I might right. increase my chances of getting it. But I'm not willing to do that. In other words, if you want me, you're going to want me for exactly you know who I am, right? Uh, and I'm not willing to compromise on that because at the end of the day, I have to lay my head down on the pillow and feel comfortable with who I am. And the only way I can do that is by speaking the truth as best as I see it. Uh, now, what upsets me is exactly what you said, which is that so many of our colleagues, certainly so many of the people that are endowed with the possibility of altering the discourse are breathtakingly cowardly. W what is it that we can do to compel them to break out of their stupor of, of cowardice and actually engage these horrible ideas. And I'm not talking here only about feminism. I'm talking about maybe now we can talk about the trigger warnings and the safe spaces and the political correctness. What can we do to get people in academia to wake up and fight back against this stuff? Oh, that's uh, not that, going to be easy. They just don't, I mean, I don't know that academics are, have been noted for their bravery, uh, you know, if I think back, it's not a group that st stands out, but uh, it may be the case that things are so ridiculous that these groups, especially the gender warriors, have pushed things so far that 
they are going to arouse, you know, activism in this, you know, relatively uh, quiet group, that the the kind of uh, silent majority right. begin to speak out. But you would have thought that would have happened by now. I know. Well, I mean, there are, of course, a few that are. Now, is, is this one of the reasons, by the way, why, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this personal question, uh, you left academia. Was it as a response of some of these kinds of dynamics where you were unwilling or unable uh, to continue navigating amongst that crowd or was it for other reasons? Oh, no, I, I, I also had tenure. Okay. And I got along very well with my colleagues in the philosophy department at Clark University. But I've been teaching for a long time and I just wanted more time to write. And uh, at a think tank, you can write, you have a research assistant and no papers to grade and no meetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, it's uh, fantastic. It's, it's uh, a dream job. <laughs> and, uh, but in the, in the other departments in my university, I saw what was happening and uh, how they were operating. And I didn't like what I saw. And for example, initially, I, my courses were cross-listed with women's studies, but when I started being critical and w had made written some papers at the about what was happening with academic feminism, they they didn't want to list my courses any longer. And again, I was just you know became a pariah, but it right. didn't matter. It wasn't in my department. I was good friends with everybody in my department. <laughs> now, out of out of a hundred hate mail or negative emails that you might receive. Give us the breakdown of the demographic profile of those people. In other words, is it uh, first? Let's do it by biological sex. Are most most of the uh, blowback that you get is it from, probably from women? I suspect, correct? You know, I I don't get that much. You don't get wow. email once in a while, but what I do get is every day uh, email, sometimes several, from students who are suffering. Right. A lot of young men who are uh, were falsely accused. I hear from them, and the stories are harrowing. Right, it's such a terrible thing. And and these these young men, their lives are ruined. This one boy wrote to me how he doesn't want he's been a cha he's been changed. He doesn't want to leave his house. He's been been sort of psychologically annihilated and shamed. And I hear from them, and and then I do hear from a lot of scholars who agree with me and want to help me, but they sort of work behind the scenes privately. Exactly, there's a lot. You probably get that. Well, I was going to say that I've, I've mentioned this in several forums where I talk about how so many colleagues uh, will write to me, as you said, behind the scenes to say, "Oh, you know, we admire your courage. Uh, I support what you're doing," uh, but then of course they won't take the time to just like your Facebook post, right? I mean, I'm not asking you to stand up in front of a stadium and swear allegiance to Gad Sad. I'm just asking you to like my Facebook post. They I'll swear allegiance to you. <laughs> oh, well, aren't you sweet? Uh, so yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, people are, are, are really afraid of their shadows and it's, it's unclear why, as you said, when, especially when you're tenured. I mean, that's what it affords you, protection. But people I are... Know. They're herd animals. That's how the winds are blowing. Therefore, I need to stay in step and not rock the boat. That's how people are. But you know what? History, whether it be for the positive or the negative, is shaped not by those people. It is shaped by those who stand out, who fight for things, rightly or wrongly, uh, whether they be Cretans or heroes. 
Uh, and so the reality is that if you if you're going to do anything that's worthwhile, you're likely going to have to be somebody who is controversial, who challenges the orthodoxy, right? You know what I love? It, it, because I give a lot of speeches on campus, I'm starting to meet millennials who are, you know, in uh, uh, juniors or sophomores, juniors, and they want to start like free speech movement on their right. campus. I go there or, or Milo's been going there. And there's there's a young man now at Bucknell who's decided that he's going to, you know, try to organize students at his campus and elsewhere around, you know, bringing back due process, bringing back freedom. I just heard from a student who's at uh, uh, Villanova. He wants to do that. And so you, I love the people that I'm able to meet. Right. And young woman, I met this great young woman and she's all, you know, she looks like a, a hipster feminist and she was, you know, tattoos and right. red, red dye, you know, brilliant red hair, but she is fed up with it. And she right. started starting a Facebook for women who just, you know, want to be able to be reasonable right. on, on gender issues. So those kids, those are the, they're the outliers, but they're also the leaders. Right. And if they fill me with hope. But on the other hand, having said that, the other side has, you know, I mean, Emma Watson's going around now. And <laughs> yes, the actress, right? Yes, and yeah. teaming up with Bell Hooks. And I, I've just spent a few weeks immersed in this literature of intersectionality. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> what a morass. But what I noticed is that no one's really come out to criticize it except the, a few Marxists. Right. Marxists don't like it for various reasons. And they, they have some good critiques. But it's just been able to flourish. And now it's the dominant philosophy of almost every gender studies right. department, probably all of them. And, you know, the National Women's Studies Association. Uh, just quickly to tell you how crazy things are. I went, when I was writing uh, Who Stole Feminism, I went to one of their conferences they had a, a gathering in Austin, Texas in 1992, and it was a crazy place in 1992, this conference. The women were all fighting. The Black Women's Caucus had was boycotting, and there were all these other subgroups. Uh, so, they ha so the theme of the whole conference was narratives of pain and litanies of outrage. And we were supposed to break down, and, and all the outrage was about the group. Not, you know, the problems women have out in the society. It was all about the group. So we were supposed to break down into groups based on our grievances and healing needs. So there were groups for Asian women, and, and there, was still, there were some black women, uh, lesbian women, women with disabilities. None of the groups proved, proved stable. They kept fighting. So some of the, like there were some black lesbian women, but some of them had white partners that gave them privilege. They were, they had to form their own group. Then there was a group of women with allergies that erupted and was angry and furious. Anyway, it was just this constant process of mitosis and these groups, smaller and smaller groups. It was a victimology out of control. So that was 92. The other day, I went to look at the website of the National Women's Studies Association to see, like, have they calmed down? Are they all <laughs> What happened? What could possibly happen? Well, here's what happened. They've united. And they've, they've united and they voted for a, a, a cause that brought them all together. They voted to boycott Israel. Ah, there you go. The evil juice, G. 
uh, J U I C E, evil juice. Are you familiar? It, can you believe it? I mean, <laughs> Israel, the one country where in the middle in that region that where women have basic rights and gays have rights and you know women are fine overall. But what they did was. Uh, it's this perverse reasoning that we talked about. So it basically took possibly the oldest hatred known to mankind, a genocidal hatred, to unite them. So it's a very heartwarming story. It's united <laughs> in hate. What's, what could be wrong with that, right? So the inter intersectionality leads to the intersection of like paranoia <laughs> and, and anti-Semitism. Right. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it. But it, it, it's, it's predictable. And, you know, even though if you go back to that crazy conference in 92, it, the the seeds were there because of the, the self-absorption and the obsession with victim hierarchies. And, the, and so what they've done is they've now worked it out through intersectionality. The the I guess the the idea is that that if you, the more oppressed you are, that, that gives you both moral standing Sorry. and authority and it gives you a privileged epistemic yeah you know position and so they're thought to so a, like a black lesbian disabled woman would have more insight into yes. this the the oppression networks well that's and the oppression olympics right it's the oppression olympics yeah. so i think what happened is there's how can they end up uniting hating israel Right is well. I don't know how they got there exactly. Right, but right. it has something to do with this hierarchy. So well, I've I've got a better story for you. You ready? You're sitting yeah. down. Uh, so I did a clip a few years ago. This is to continue along the sort of uh, anti-Semitic uh, bent, uh, but this is actually coming from, if I remember correctly, from a Jewish and Israeli woman. So this uh, woman was doing a study in Israel uh, about the supposed, uh, you know, rapes and uh, violation of uh, Palestinian women by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And so she did a study where she tried to identify such cases, to document such cases, and to her utter dismay, because it, of course, didn't go with the narrative, she found that there were no recorded incidents None. There were no recorded incidents of rape by IDF on Palestinian women. Guess what she concluded based on that empirical fact. Let's see. Oh. Let's see if you've been exposed enough of to lunacy. I know the answer. Oh, you of do. Course. She she had to conclude that the problem was far more serious than we ever imagined. Because not only is there this epidemic of sexual predation, it's completely covered up the victims are invisible <laughs> it's much more diabolical this good effort based mom but i'm sorry to say you didn't get it here's oh my what God. here's what the true answer is you ready yeah the fact that the idf did not engage in the rape of these women demonstrates how much they have marginalized the other how much they despise the other how no, racist that is weird oh yeah I, you could watch my clip it's right there it, i think it was done at hebrew university if i'm not mistaken uh so imagine so if, if if she had uncovered that they had raped then of course they would have been evil disgusting jews if she uncovers that they were 
perfectly moral. Not a single instance that demonstrates. They can't win. They can't. Jews can't win. <laughs> Ever. Jews you can't know, win. And people. And, you know, in the United States, people talk about hate crimes. I haven't checked this out, but I have heard from some I have. reliable sources. There are more the Jews get are targets of the majority. Oh, of astonishing. So every year the FBI comes out. I shared these, I think, maybe last year or the year before. I think I did the 2014 FBI stats. You're exactly right. They come out with uh, hate crimes broken down by different targets of hate. And the uh, Jews are overwhelmingly the kings of uh you know, the, the ones who are victim of hate. And certainly much more than, for example, what you hear about, you know, Islamophobia, right? I mean, Muslims are afraid to walk the streets in the, in the United States because there's such rampant Islamophobia. Well, guess what? There's a lot more anti-Semitism. So there you go. Uh, all right, let's talk about, since we're continuing on this bent of lunacy, bene- <laughs> benevolent sexism. I love this one. I did a few pieces on this both on my Psychology Today column and also in, in one of my sad truths. Uh, maybe you could first explain to us what benevolent sexism is, and then I might actually discuss some of the items that are used to measure benevolent sexism. But why don't you take it away? Well, it's uh, uh, actions, comments that are you know ostensibly polite or complimentary, but underneath is actually a hidden denigration. So, for example, a man opening a door seems polite, but he's actually demonstrating his superiority. Or will you give me some examples? Yeah, so here we go. You ready? So should I read you? There's there's 11 of them. I don't know if we need to go Don't read all of them. Yeah, exactly. I'll do a few. So this one, you basically answer strongly disagree to strongly agree or whatever the scale is. So people are often truly happy in life without being romantically involved with a member of the opposite sex, the other sex. This is reverse quoted. So if you say, yes, it's true that people could be happy in life, that's good. If you say that, no, I would want to be with somebody of the opposite sex. If a man answers that, he's engaging in benevolent sexism. So the recognition that a sexually reproducing species, a member of that species would answer that he would be happier if he were accompanied in life with the opposite sex is benevolently sexist. And if a woman says that? Well, th- yeah, but I, I don't know. Th- this is oh, we ma- don't know. The man saying that. Exactly. Th- we're trying to uncover the hatred of men here. Please don't ruin the narrative. Uh, here's another one. Men are complete. This is reverse coded again. Men are complete without women. If I answer yes, that's good from a benevolent sexist. If I say no, I'm not complete without a woman. I love my wife. I want to share my life with my wife. I am engaging in benevolent sexism. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. And it's also so sad to think that young people are are imbibing these lessons that are so just hostile to human nature. And just for, for in, in case people might think, oh, this is some quack, you know, inventory that nobody cares about. This is from a paper by Glick and Fisk, 1996, that has been cited hundreds of times you know i think last i checked several years ago it was you know well over four or five hundred times in a, in a top journal so this is not you know some fringe paper that nobody cares about this is sort of the definitive paper to uncover and unmask benevolent sexism uh it's just unbelievable isn't it interesting that we've come to the point where you notice how the left does this they you, you, let's say you can't find enough overt sexism. 
So then you need a new category, benevolent sexism or hidden bias, or then you, you, you no longer count people. You can't find enough people being overtly racist. So then you say, well, you have to check your privilege. Right. You have your privileges. Made. You know, there's all, they, they keep upping the ante. And you know what's being missed? What's being missed is that overall, what's important to understand about our society is all the things we're doing right. Right. And even the even the, the crazy things the left does, there's always, I'm always listening because there's always, even with political correctness, some of it was just politeness. Right. And being considerate and, you know, not using words like retard or, you know, you know, these, a lot of young people do that. And they don't realize that that can have, an, an, you know, very unhappy sure. effect on, on very vulnerable people. So you, you want to listen to them. But what's so sad is that it, it, it's now so out of control right. that we're, it, we're just, we've, I don't know, what were we talking about? I, I lost my... No, so let, me, let, me, let me come in. You're talking about uh, the upping the ante of coming up with oh, endless, yeah, yeah. endless new ways of, of finding racism and sexism. Here's another great example. By the way, I discussed several of these, uh, sorry for the plug, in uh, uh, a recent lecture I gave at the University of Ottawa on political correctness, so folks can check it out. Uh, so there was a student at Queen's University, uh, a... Uh, a, an important university in Canada and Kingston, yeah. Ontario, uh, that decided she she was Iranian but not of Muslim uh, descent. Uh, she decided to wear a hijab uh, as an experiment to see how people would uh, respond to her. Are, are you familiar with what I'm what I'm going to say next, or you don't know this case? No, no. Okay, get ready. This is a good one. Uh, and, <laughs> and and so uh, I don't remember how many days it was. I think she she wore it for something like eighteen days. Because, of course, she was going to uncover this, you know, this endless, overt hatred, intolerance, bigotry towards Muslims. And what she found is that people were very kind, respectful, and, you know, they didn't care that she was wearing a hijab. They were just lovely to her. You know what she, con you, you know what she concluded from that? Tell me. Well, it was latent hatred. Right? <laughs> what better way for me to hide my vile Islamophobia than to overtly uh, be very nice to the woman in the hijab, right? That's how I'm overcompensating for my hatred. So it is literally a, a, a intellectually dishonest, unfalsifiable position. If I spew hatred towards the woman in question, I'm hateful. If I'm incredibly nice to the woman in, in question, I'm hateful. How can right. I avoid the appellation of hate? I can't. Everything can't. leads to hate. Right. And, and, and as I said before, the, the categories have already been set. So she's now, she's obviously taken the courses where she learned the hierarchy of oppression. And that as a, I guess she's, she counts as a, a woman of color. Right. And then that she's from Iran. Right. She's, it's just a given that she will be, you know, mis she's, it's a given that no one will treat her well. Exactly. And that's what she sees. Incidentally, one of the reasons uh, to tie, tie things back to my own work, one of the ways in which I became familiar with some of this feminist stuff uh, is because inherently as a evolutionary 
scientist, I'm aware that there is sexual dimorphism within the human species. I mean, that's how we biologically define our species, right? And therefore, yeah. there are endless number of ways. As, as a basal definition of our species, where you recognize that there are innate sex differences. And of course, I've done a lot of research in all sorts of ways uh, to demonstrate many of these uh, biological-based sex differences. And that's how I originally, if you like, academically speaking, I came to face a lot of this feminist nonsense because I would oftentimes send my papers. Now, if I send my paper to a journal that is uh, housed by natural scientists, they read the stuff and they go, oh, yeah, sure, of course, you know, menstrual cycle effects and testosterone and so on. If you send the paper to a journal, you know, that is uh, housed by, you know, that has all the feminists and postmodernists and so on, then you, I would get back reviews that were simply astonishing, right? The mere fact that I was studying sex differences, the mere fact that I was recognizing that it is possible that sex differences might exist was inherently sexist, right? right? So... It's just, it's breathtaking. Now, my feeling is now, you said that it's actually getting worse. I get the feeling, at least among the academic crowd that I navigate with, that some of that stuff is is losing its power. For example, postmodernism doesn't seem to be as strong today as it was, say, 20 years ago. Is, I mean, is that your sense or, or you would disagree with that? Oh, I agree with that. Okay, but, right. But the uh, the gender scholars... Are, so they're still ascending. The postmodernists are dying, but the gender scholars... But because it, the reason why... The gender scholars are very invested in this theory of sexual fluidity. Right. That it's fluid and that we all sort of exist on... It's all on a spectrum. And now, that's not true. Right. If you actually check the real world... Right. <laughs> uh, they're... Most people are have very strong sets of themselves as as male or female, and then there's a tiny percentage of people who uh, don't clearly identify as male. I mean, it's a it's a what is it? We're talking about less than one percent right. of the population. I mean, I think there is. The, I think at least the research that I'm aware of that there is a there is more sexual fluidity amongst women than there is among men. Uh, but you're right that most people tend to be less fluid than the narrative would suggest. Than the narrative, right. Yeah. Now, uh, here's an interesting uh, sort of personal anecdote. When I talk about all sort of my evolutionary-based uh, stuff to a crowd of academics, and if there are feminists in the crowd, usually their response to whatever I'm saying uh, will depend on whether that which I'm saying fits their narrative or not. So, for example, if I discuss evolutionary reasons why women have actually evolved to very much seek sexual variety, why they are hardly the Victorian chaste, you know, prudes, yeah, like then, oh, Dr. Saad, brilliant okay. work, bravo, you're, you're a super guy. If, on the other hand, I might suggest something like, Okay, true. Yes, but by the way, there are reasons why men might have evolved greater penchant for sexual variety. Oh, Dr. Mengele, Nazi, Nazi, right? So, so everything is viewed through the prism of whether it supports and confirms my ideology or not. So the epistemology is not the one that scientists follow. It's based on adherence to ideology, right? Right. 
And that's why it's, uh, it, as I say, it's almost uh, like a, a, a sort of strict religious yeah. set of you know beliefs and certain things they can accommodate and others they can't. It's not empirical. It they begin as with this ideology. Right. And uh, what I find, I have found the same thing, by the way. And uh, I, I think it was uh, Roy Baumeister introduced. Oh yes. Quoting someone, this word, uh, 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 this "wa" phenomenon. Women are wonderful. So if you do a study and you find that women are better at something than men. We're better multitaskers, or women are, you know, better, oh, people love to say better uh, negotiators or di diplomats, and uh, that's fine. Anything that, sh that so shows how wonderful women are. But if you dare to show that in any domain that men might have, you know, superior ability, that is forbidden sexist you know it's funny because I've, I've remarked the exact same point but i didn't know that baumeister had actually coined the term for it so thank you i just learned something new i'll have to check it's it out called wa the wa for not w-a-w women are wonderful i love it and you make you can make rooms of people just so happy right you know and and as he says he likes women he thinks they're wonderful but right but um you know there are differences and there are areas where men on average have you know better spatial reasoning skills and uh, you know physically stronger? There are now young feminists that are so carried away with this idea that the that there's no such thing as masculine or feminine. They they think that it's a social construct to say that women are stronger uh, that that men, men are, are physically right. stronger. Yeah, they, uh, little boys are taught to play uh, more rough and tumble, and that's what really develops their muscle fibers. And that allows them to then right. be stronger, right? That's what makes Bubba be a a a, uh, a guard for the University of Nebraska football team. It's all due to social <laughs> construction. It's it's breathtaking. Now, do do you see a new generation of? Uh, are there any new feminists? I mean, true feminists, not sort of this these the, the the lunatic fringe, but feminists that you and I would agree are the types of feminists that we would like to see. Uh, uh, you know, spread their voices. Are there any that you can sort of promote here? You know, I'm very heartened by a group of uh, liberals and feminists who've come forward at Harvard University, for example, uh, specifically Janet Haley, and I think it's Charles Ogletree. These are very liberal professors, Jenny Souk, but they've come out against these this new... A regime uh, about sexual harassment and Title IX and right. lowering the standards of guilt for what turns out to be mostly young men. They have opposed it. And uh, Professor Haley has just spoken out. And she's a, an old time feminist. She's been, a, and, and I think she's gay. And she has been fighting for women's rights, you know, from, you know, since she was in college in the 70s. But she can't, she sees that this is um, the illiberalism and the, uh, that it's unconstitutional, what's right. happening at Harvard around the so-called rape culture. You also have people like Wendy Kaminer and um, uh, some professors at University of Pennsylvania, male and female, uh, who are beginning to speak out. And that is a very good sign. We need more of them. Right. And uh, would you, I, but would, 
Would you put? I suspect they will be there. Would you put? Would you put Laura Kipnis as part of that crowd? Given yes, what she yes, went? Laura Kipnis is a great example. Yeah. Okay. Good. At Northwestern, where she she's a very much a feminist, and she but she found the idea of trigger warnings absurd and wrote a paper uh, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, sort of making fun of it. Two graduate students. Exactly. What vindictive graduate students? Yeah. Where did this come from? People that are so angry and mean and want to hurt people. They they said that they were triggered by her article, and uh, they brought her up on Title IX. And, and I think you correct me if I'm wrong that by her questioning the the narrative of sort of the endemic campus rape culture that was creating an unsafe environment for future generations. Hence, these women in the future would not have equal access to education. Hence, the Title IX trick. I mean, being operative, yes. right? She, her article, they claimed, was would violated Title IX, which Incredible. should have protected them from that kind of of harassment. Well, it was complete nonsense. Now they can bring up any charge they want. You you would not expect the university to, to move forward, yeah. Her. And it took several months, and she describes this Kafka escort deal, you know. It, having to explain what she wrote. Well, eventually they let her off. And then some people's apologists said, oh, well, the system worked. She was exonerated. No, the system did not work. She's been punished by the she virtue of the process. Being investigated. Yeah. And this is happening. If you if you check out the organization FIRE, the Foundation oh, for yeah. Rights Indicate, kids are being investigated on and public universities where they apparently don't know that they have full set of their, you know, constitutional rights right. and in fact the court the supreme court has ruled over and over again that fr that free speech is most important right. in an intellectual setting and that includes satire it includes just almost anything right that it's, a kid would say and yet kids are getting thrown out of school or punished for their text messages and uh, if they're thought to be in, in, with any sexual content now right. that could be Considered. I just heard about a boy who's been punished severely. Uh, I think he lost his ROTC scholarship because of the school, not because of ROTC, because he wrote, he, he was having a fight with his roommate and he wrote an aggressive message. And the roommate brought him up on a male roommate. They were both heterosexual. The roommate said that he feminized him oh in the goodness. attack. I don't know what he said, I can imagine. Yeah. And, uh, and he's been punished for that. Unbelievable. But incidentally... Uh, no, well, it's a private university. I guess they can right. do that, but who knows? You you mentioned FIRE. I actually had uh, Greg Lukianov uh, on the show. Absolutely fantastic guy doing doing God's work, if you if you believe in God. So, yeah, he's a wonderful organization. People should support it. They're really standing at the forefront of trying to protect, uh, you know, First Amendment rights of all people on university campuses. I guess I'll end today. I could keep you here for another five hours, but uh, we have to end it, I suppose. Uh, I'll end it maybe by asking you if you've got any new projects, any new exciting initiatives that people might not be aware of that you'd like to briefly discuss and give us the first scoop on. Well, as I told you, I'm working on intersectionality. <laughs> I'm doing a you know whether it's a, what its proponents claim, it's this liberating uh, philosophy, or is it, you know, as I said, a, a, a victimology that's spun out of control? Um, 
This is a book I'm you're trying, working on? Is this a book or I'm a paper? I'm working on it, yes. Okay. I'm trying to keep an open mind. You know, I read these books and I think, okay, I'm going to agree with her. I'm reading Bell Hooks. And there are things I like about her in the book. And then suddenly there'll be, you know, she'll talk about the capitalist, patriarchal, colonialist oppressor and, we have, you know, how we have to bring it down. <laughs> what is she talking about? Right. Just these this sloganeering and these this paranoia. So that's one thing. But the most exciting thing I'm doing is um, a few weeks ago I I lecture on campuses a lot, and now Milo Yiannopoulos has started his tour. I'm not going to say the name of the tour. I don't approve of it. Right. But he has this tour, and um, I went with him to, together. We lectured at the University of Minnesota. It was a huge success. We got a standing ovation. Nice. The audience was full. Now he's, uh, you know, a charismatic figure, and he people love Milo, and even people disagree with him, they come. So we got a huge audience, but then I have the opportunity to be. It's not. It's sort of bad cop, good cop, but it's more <laughs> like a concerned mother and wayward son. So I correct him and say, you know, what he really means to say is, and, and try to rein him in. Right. As much as I can. So you guys are going together to several yes, different... Yes, so I think we're, we're going to Notre Dame. Nice. On uh, April 6th, and where there's discussions of uh, Cornell and a few other places. My alma mater. Cornell. Cornell's yes. my alma mater, yeah. We're trying to make it happen. Oh, very nice. Wonderful. Hey, try to make it up here to Montreal. Maybe you'll you'll thaw some of the, the cold that we have up here with your uh, lovely presence. Oh, I would love to go. I love Montreal. Yeah, oh, good. Nice. Well, you know, for about eight months a year, it's gorgeous. For about four months, you need to cocoon and just be patient and let the winter wear out. Uh, anyways, uh, thank you so much for this chat. It was a real pleasure. Of course, I've followed your stuff for a long time, so it was a real honor to have you join me. Uh, stay on the line. I'm going to stop the, uh, the taping now, and we'll just wrap it up offline. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you.